0: Hello and welcome to the Black Belt and Thinking Podcast. I'm Peter Cronin, your host. Today I'm talking about how to innovate like a tech entrepreneur. That's all about reasoning from first principles to be innovative and to solve problems. Welcome to the Black Belt and Thinking Podcast. I'm Peter Cronin, lead presenter of the Black Belt and Thinking. This is a podcast where we look at all things to do with thinking faster and acting more purposefully. I interview experts in their field to try and provide you with the insights to the way they think and the tools and processes they use on a day-to-day basis. If you find value in this podcast, love for you to share it with others. All right, so innovating like a tech entrepreneur. Now that might sound a little over the top and really talking about anyone, not necessarily uh, just tech entrepreneurs who innovates and needs to innovate, but tends to be tech that's you know, most relatable these days, Um, and it's not necessary that uh, just because you're a tech entrepreneur, you're incredible, innovating, either. Essentially, what we are here to talk about is uh, reasoning from first principles, as I said. However, that's the skill and not the outcome, so it doesn't make for a great title, but we're talking about people like Musk, Jobs, Gates, uh, Michael Dell, and their approach and how they got to where they got. Right. so what are first principles? Well, if we look at a dictionary definition, it's the fundamental concepts or assumptions on which a theory, system, or method is based. Fundamental concepts. Quote might be, I think we have to start again and go back to first principles. Something we've probably all heard. If we look at uh, Wikipedia, it says, a first principle is a basic proposition or assumption that cannot be deduced from any other proposition or assumption. So that's a lot of words. Um, What does that mean? It's essentially one of these core kind of elements. So this is used a lot in physics. Um, The term actually originated from Aristotle for anybody interested in looking this up and looking up the history and everything. um, Aristotle defined the term uh, and then uh, Descartes, uh, you know, the uh, the French uh, philosopher did a lot of work on it, I suppose from there, but it's heavily used in physics. Drawing back to the core concepts that we we know and accept essentially as fact or as close to fact as we can get. All right, so with all that sort of formal stuff out of the way, I'm going to be speaking a little less technically correctly here. Uh, I'm going to be talking about facts and assumptions. So when we talk about going back to first principles, we're talking about, as I said, um, what, are the, what are the fundamental, essentially facts. Now, again, this is not technical uh Technically correct when you when you look this up, but it makes the distinction clear. What do we consider a fact and what are the things that um, we consider assumptions? Assumptions that we might believe or might be quite strong, but aren't necessarily absolute. Now, the line is pretty arbitrary on that and that makes it less technically correct, but it also makes it far more useful for our purposes. We kind of get to choose where we want to put the line between facts and assumptions. Uh, when we come to solve something. Now, if you're really trying to innovate, you know, like Musk or someone and change entire industries, uh, that line's going to have to be uh, pretty strict and and sort of pretty base level of what you're actually considering fact. Whereas if you're trying to, uh, say, innovate within a company, within the bounds of what the company allows you to do, uh, there's certain things you're going to take as facts which aren't, but might be required as part of your company, for example. Right. So the skill itself is in going back to the hard facts and challenging all the assumptions we're presented with. It's not about accepting, you know, the way things are or anything like that. So there's interesting different examples of this. Uh, One is Michael Dell. So he got into the computer industry, um, you know, Dell computers, after discovering that at the time, the cost of a computer, a computer cost five times the sum of its component parts. And he basically thought that was odd and started questioning that and found that to be, well, unnecessary, which is why he saw the opening in the market. What's interesting there is the component parts, um, essentially, he took as facts. Now, he might have questioned those as well. I I don't know from the anecdote I've seen. Um, But in this case, essentially, they ended up to him as what we're going to call a fact in this context, um, whereas the assembly was an assumption, an assumption made by everybody else in the industry that, well, it just cost that much. Apparently when he went asking around, people sort of, you know, did the kind of, well, obviously you're not in the industry. That's just what it costs by the time you've got to fit them together and everything. It's very complex. It's very this and that. Um, that's just the way it is. That's just the way it is is a, is a great example of assumption people aren't really looking very hard at or they don't understand. Now, similar but different example is Musk talking about um, battery technology. It's almost the opposite, where the components cost was where the assumption was, or where the faulty assumptions were that he found, that everybody said, well, batteries just cost this much. Uh, the assembly wasn't overpriced or overexpensive. Again, he probably looked into that but found that, okay, that's a fact that the assembly's fine. However, the component cost is where the assumptions were being made, that it turns out were incorrect, and he said, "Well, you know, we can do this differently. we can get the, the parts uh, the components cheaper or this sort of thing. The key point with these examples is you can't rely on others, or you can't even rely on these examples to be useful to you. They are only useful in the sense that it shows that we need to be able to think like these people and go back to first principles. In one case, the components cost was um, was a was fine. However, the assembly was um, was where people were making assumptions. In the other case, it was the opposite. Point being, we can't just look at this and go, "Oh, well, Dell did this, so I'll go try and find where, um, you know, where assembly is a is a waste of money in my industry, or vice versa." Oh, Musk did this, so I'll just assume assembly is fine, and I'll go looking for where component costs are too high in my industry. This is what we we often tend to do, and this is what companies that aren't necessarily cutting edge or innovating are doing. They're looking for the incremental gains. They're looking to sort of copy from others. If you're, if you're looking for industry benchmarks, you're obviously not innovating because you're trying to get to the average of your industry. This is the opposite to that. We're looking at, well, how do we challenge what is already there? So we base most of our decisions and understanding on heuristics. This is just us as people, as humans, um, in everyday life. And so do these guys, so do uh, all of these tech people. Um, These come from essentially two places, from our experience and from looking at others. Now, it's not necessarily physically seeing them, but from education that's passed down to us, books we read, learning from others. And we must do that. We, we have to, we can't question everything every single day or else we wouldn't, we'd barely make it out of bed. If, you know, we started by trying to question whether the floor was hard today, like it was tomorrow, we can't make that assumption and testing that and so on and so on, you know, making it ridiculous. So many things we do, we must rely on heuristics and it's a fantastic function of our brains that we can do that. However, there are certain things that we don't want to do that on. We want to step away from, and this is where, where the skill comes in. The, the problem with our heuristics is experience is faulty, right? Uh, just because it worked one way for us doesn't mean, we, you know, we might've got lucky or we might not even be looking at the right um, circumstance. Uh, you know, our brains are correlation engines, not causation engines. So if you, the simplest way I've had this explained to me is um, neurons connect with other neurons and it's a, it's a, it's a two way street, so to speak. It's not one way. It's not, oh, well, the neuron knows that if this then that. All it does is it connects two things in your head. So those are things are correlated. So we're not necessarily forming the best uh, knowledge base of our experience. Same with looking at others. Often we will see the outcome or see what they've did, what they've done, but we're often missing the underlying logic as to why they did it or why it worked, um, which might be necessary for us to be able to reapply that effectively. So Heuristics, great for every day, great for getting through things. But if we want to be innovative, uh, not so great. Uh, Prime example, I've just got a note here. Um, For anybody that goes to the gym or, you know, um, uh, does any sort of sport, physical activity, you you might know the term bro science, right? You think of like gym bros sort of thing. But it's these things that they've learned, you know, they they learned that from the biggest guy in the gym. He says, well, he does X, Y, Z, so therefore I'll do X, Y, Z could be a total coincidence, could actually be hurting his progress. Uh, however, everything else he does makes up for it. So this is the kind of uh, the kind of thing. So when we wanna solve a problem that no one else has solved, or solve a problem in a way that nobody else has solved before, heuristics aren't good enough. We can't rely on them. So we must think like these tech entrepreneurs and reason from first principles. So this is where our facts versus assumptions come in. What do we want to consider? What do we consider a fact, and what do we consider an assumption? And honestly, the the level of value you can get out of the skill and the your ability to innovate is really where you mentally put that line. The more things you're willing to consider purely an assumption and to test them and not to not to trust them, um, the more open you are to innovative innovation. Uh, you know, look going back to Musk for a second, if you look at what he did, um, you know, SpaceX, the, the reusable rockets that basically the entire aerospace industry of the world told him was impossible and was ridiculous, and they were accepting it as a fact. And something that probably everybody else on the planet accepted as a fact because of that. He didn't. He considered that an assumption and said, No, nope, I can I can change this. And he did. And you know, he was, you know, humiliated by the industry, well tempted to be anyway, from from their end. Um multiple rocket launch failures, landing failures, all of these things all the way, and everybody said, see, it can't be done, and until it was. So this is an example of where your ability mentally to accept something as only an assumption and not a pure fact just opens your doors to what you're willing to um, change and therefore create or innovate. And it's not necessarily that just because you can do this, you always do. This is a skill that needs to be honed and it needs to be actively deployed. So another another story I've got here is, if you think of um, BlackBerry, you know, dominant in their day, um, I read, I forget which book this was in now, it might be Atomic Habits, but I'm not sure. Um No, I think it was Think Again. Anyway, fantastic book, Think Again. It's basically about this. It's about not accepting your assumptions and moving forward. Anyway, um the... The CEO at the time um, and founder of RAM, the, the company that makes BlackBerry, when the iPhone came out, they, they genuinely thought it was hilarious. Like they all sat around in a boardroom and, and um, they watched the, uh, the announcement and everything and thought, this is ridiculous. You know, you can't, for a start, you can't have a full screen. You need a keyboard because the full screen chooses too much battery and everything. Um, look at the size of that thing. Does, the battery's got to be tiny. Uh they all sort of sat around and laughed at it until their engineers got a hold of one and then they had a panic moment where they broke it open and the entire back was battery. Which they couldn't understand because most most of their back, or maybe like it was half and half or something, um, was was circuit board, was the logic chips, and the other half was battery. And when Apple had somehow figured out to make this tiny chip that could run, you know, this little computer in your pocket they realized that they they basically had a problem. That's interesting because they were such an innovative company. And the founder even lamented that he'd fallen into this kind of trap of, you know, we've innovated now and resting on his laurels. But it goes to show that while this is a skill and it can be deployed, it must be sort of actively, actively deployed. And Apple's done the same thing now. If you look at the going back to first principles things versus um, evolution or developing on what you have, Intel versus uh, the new um, uh, Apple M1 chips that they have in laptops is a fantastic example of that. So Intel has been incrementally developing, adding to, adding to, adding to what they have. Um, You know, the chips are getting slightly higher performance and everything, but they are very energy expensive um, and generate a lot of heat. So they're very inefficient, essentially. Whereas Apple took the chips that they put into their iPhones which had to be low energy consumption. These are the ones that sort of blew, blew the guys at RAM, um, BlackBerry's minds. Uh, they had to be low energy consumption and they had to be low heat consumption and they had to be small. So they managed to build these and then scale those up into a laptop. So the fundamentals of it, you know, going back to first principles, the first principles the chips are based off is an entirely different platform. They didn't, they didn't take like a, a laptop level chip and tinker with it or try and reverse it down. They did the opposite. They went back to scratch and managed to build something that, sure, had far lower performance initially, but also have far lower energy consumption and heat generation. And then scale that performance up such that now, if you know, if you look at benchmarks and things, it's absolutely insane. You've got a, a MacBook Air that can outperform some of the top uh, PCs on the market with their Intel chips while having, you know, a 20-hour battery life and needing no fans in it because um, the heat it generates is tiny. So, that's a fantastic example of this. This podcast is brought to you by the BBIT. If you want to improve your own thinking and problem-solving skills, visit blackboundandthinking.com to sign up now. Now, if you look online, you're going to find a lot of information about these, a lot of examples. First, Reasoning from first principles is a good thing to look up. Um, and you'll see a lot of articles about, oh, how to tech entrepreneurs do this? The key thing they're missing is how to actually do this. And this is what we teach, this is essentially what a lot of the black button thinking is about so what i'm able to do here is combine those two what i'm going to do is take us through the three steps that allegedly are musk's three steps for for reasoning from first principles uh this is alleged by multiple articles i can find the same three steps however i can't actually find him saying it but anyway um take what you will from that And then I'm going to give you some more tangible steps from, from our practice uh, as to how to actually do this. All right. So Musk's three steps. Step one, identify and define your current assumptions. Pretty straightforward. Step two, straightforward in theory. (laughs) Step two, break down the problem into its fundamental principles. And step three, create new solutions from scratch. So if we look at that, that sounds reasonable. Um, but how to do that is obviously a totally different aspect. All right, so for step one, let's focus on that. Identify and define your current assumptions. Uh, In our experience, the best way to do this is through cause and effect kind of logical thinking. You start with a situation you're in, um, something that you consider to be true. Now, this might be a problem area, or if we're innovating, it might not be like, might not be considered a problem, but because you're attempting to innovate it, you have to consider it one. It might just be a, a series of, of cause and effect steps that you go, oh, well, everybody sort of accepts this. Sure, but you don't want them to accept it. Or you don't want to accept it so that you can change it. So anyway, this is either a problem or it's just a, a situation we're in. Cause and effect steps. The easiest way to think about stepping out cause and effect is post-it notes. Whether you're thinking about using them digitally or or physically on a whiteboard or a piece of paper or your desk or whatever. Uh, it's the easiest way of thinking of this. If you think of one post-it note can contain sort of one statement, one logical statement, um, you can you can define them quite clearly. And then if you imagine, you know, uh, like a little pillar where, imagine your page and at the bottom you've got one post-it note, you know, a little above it you've got another one, another one, another one. So, that's, so you've got four post-it notes here and then you connect them with arrows. So an arrow going from the bottom one to the one above it and so on, um, you can create a logic chain like this. You know, if this, then that. If this one, then that one, the one after it sort of thing. Um, and I'm gonna go through an example uh, in a minute. So we draw we draw this up, um, you use post-it notes like that, cause and effect steps, flow flow chart, kind of thinking. Um, if this, then that, draw the arrows on, now, this is uh, the the part that helps you. Essentially, this is where you're going to define what counts as facts and what counts as uh, assumptions for you. And our our example I'm going to go through has a good example of this. So you can add to the post-it notes. If you think about putting them in parallel, I might put a, a screenshot of this um, or a little image of this um, in uh, in the show notes. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes too, to to uh, the blog post on our on our website, so you can have a, a look at this. But anyway. Um, if you imagine your post-it note, the one at the bottom, you could put beside it another one, which is kind of your and fact. So you're saying, oh, well, if this, then that, uh, because of this thing, which I accept as a fact. So anything really solid like that, you can put on another post-it note beside it. Now, separately to that, you consider the the arrow. And OK, so I've said if these, these post-it notes, then the post-it note above. What you're looking at there is listing all the assumptions as to that arrow. So not the things you consider hard facts we've just you know got to accept the way that it is. These are all the things that many of them will read like hard facts or they they will seem that way at first but they're all the things that were that were open to challenging and again the more willing you are to put things in that list rather than to put it in the post-it notes the more open you are to, to really being innovative. So if you really want to have a proper crack at this, uh, don't put anything in, the, uh, in those post notes to the side. But some some things you might be required to, they might be, as I said before, physics, or they might be, uh, in our example, I'm gonna have a like a regulatory requirement. And unless we're here to change the laws, uh, which you might be, in which case it would be assumption. But if you're working within the laws in your business or whatever, then it's gonna be a, um, we're gonna consider that like a fact. Right, now that's the key thing. So step one was identify and define your current assumptions. It's hard to just jump into that. This step, by stepping them out and then listing all the assumptions you're making on that arrow, why it has to be that way, is a really practical way to get to this point. Okay, step two, break down the problem into its fundamental principles. So you can verify these these assumptions you've made. Uh, with research, or I've got a bit of a hack here. So when I say break down the problems with fundamental principles, we've got our problem, we've clarified it, we've got the assumptions we're making. What are the fundamental principles behind that assumption? So if you, if this is a huge thing for you, and you're going to launch a whole new product or something, um, or you're really you're trying to be, you know, the next Musk or, or Jobs or whatever, then it is worth taking all of those assumptions and really independently challenging them. You know, doing the research on it, getting involved with the people that that know the technical on it, so that you can challenge them and find a way a way to break them. If you're perhaps innovating um, in a bit more of a, I might say, normal everyday manner, uh, but you still want to be ahead of your your competition and everything. And we've worked with many, many companies to do exactly this with just using this step. The hack is to just reverse them. It's a bit of a mind trick. You write them as assumptions and say, oh, well, it seems like it has to be this way. And then just reverse all of the statements. So rewrite them as if they were the opposite. Once it's written down as a statement and it's the opposite, sometimes some of them will just jump out as, oh, yeah, we could do that. I could make that one true. We, we could probably find a way to do that. So it just tricks your, your brain into thinking the reverse is possible. And all you're doing is looking for one, Maybe two, but you only really need one of these assumptions that everybody else is making. There are assumptions everybody accepts in that circumstance. That once you reverse it, you look at it and say, "No, actually, it doesn't have to be that way. We we could make that happen." So that's breaking down the problem into its fundamental principles. And three, uh, create new solution from scratch again. Uh, you can use you know, research to do this. How are you going to do that? Especially if you're going to actually technically do that, you might need to really dig into this—the the sort of engineering of it. Uh, or again, we've got a hack for you. So it's a similar it's a sort of reversing trick. What you do is the the assumption that you identified that you reversed, and you said, "Oh, you know, if this if this was changed, it would change everything." list all the reasons why you can't change that or why it's hard or why nobody has done it. And we consider these kind of obstacles, right? Like these are the reasons it can't be done. Now, all you do is, again, reverse those and you end up with a list of now objectives. Um, so this is a, this is kind of a trick older than time. Um, it's actually, uh, i read about it uh, being mentioned by, a, uh, by Marcus Aurelius, the, the Roman uh, emperor, who said, uh, you know, uh, what does he say? The impediments to action clarify the actions, or something like that. I'm not quite exactly right, but essentially, the impediment to the the obstacle to achieving what you want to achieve clarifies exactly what you need to overcome to achieve it. So you can do that. You reverse them from obstacles into, let's say, objectives, because you're trying to you know you're trying to reach them, um, and you end up with a list of objectives to achieve. And now have a plan to actually cause this change, this innovation, to take hold. Some of those obstacles might be outlandish as well. Uh, So some of those objectives and you look at them and go, geez, how are we going to do that? I know it sounds a bit ridiculous, but you just repeat the process. You take one of them again, you list the reasons why it's ridiculous, why it's so hard to do, and you reverse those out. You end up with kind of a nested kind of project list or project plan here. Um, So you can continue doing this until all your reasons are okay. Of course, you can also enlist the help of people in your organization or that you know that know more about some of the technical elements of this to, to resolve them. So there we go uh, before I jump into an example that is that's taking um, allegedly what uh Elon Musk's three steps are identifying and defining your current assumptions breaking down the problem into its fundamental principles and creating new assumptions from scratch and giving them giving you some uh some tangible steps to to follow there all right so what I'll do is I'll put this example that I'm going to read through uh in in, those, in that blog um post in the show notes with a link so that, um, you know, you can see this as the example. So what I've got here is, uh, is nothing, well, it's, it's, a little tech related and I'll get into that, but the, the core we have here is, um, is actually to do with, uh, training. So basically training any student in anything, training anybody, in anything new within your business, and then letting them loose can, can cause havoc. Um, I've got a bit of a bit of an example here that that ends up having a, you know nice kind of in, innovative solutions. Um, they don't appear innovative now because we're looking back in history a little. But anyway, aviation training, right? It's one of the most extreme examples where at, at some point you've got to let a student loose. Um, and I can only imagine that is terrifying for for instructors, especially the first few times they do it. Um, letting them loose in an aircraft by themselves for the first time. And it's a a huge moment for the student as well, Um, you know, their first solo. I can certainly, yeah, remember it. Anyway, um, so what I'm going to do is step these out and cause an effect as to, you know, what could go wrong here or what frequently is a concern within, you know, our, our industry or our business that we could have a look at innovating. So... If we let the student practice solo, then sometimes the student will mishandle an aircraft. So mishandle in this context, I'm meaning like quite relatively severely, you know. uh, So so something might be a really hard landing, slamming it onto the ground. Another thing might be uh, using, you know, deploying flaps above the speed you're allowed to deploy them. You might not know that, but it might sound obvious. You know, if you think of flaps on a plane, uh, there's there's a, a top limit for when you're allowed to deploy them. If you deploy them above that, that's, that's mishandled it. All right, so if sometimes a student will mishandle an aircraft, then sometimes the aircraft have to be inspected. If sometimes the aircraft have to be inspected, then sometimes the aircraft are grounded. If sometimes the aircraft are grounded, then we miss out on revenue. So this is a simple example of how we have a, a, a situation that's just required in our, in our, in our trade, uh, leading to a negative effect for us and for many other organizations. What I'm going to do is add in a few, uh, for each of these steps, I'm going to add in um, what we consider to be the fundamental fact associated with this. So if we let the student practice solo and people are more likely to make make mistakes when new to something, then sometimes the student will mishandle an aircraft. If sometimes a student will mishandle an aircraft and mishandled aircraft must always be inspected, then sometimes aircraft have to be inspected. If sometimes aircraft have to be inspected and aircraft are grounded while waiting for inspections, then sometimes our aircraft are grounded. If sometimes our aircraft are grounded and aircraft can't earn us money when on the ground, then we miss out on revenue. So all of those ands I added in there were what we're going to consider facts in this. You know, people are more likely to make mistakes when new to something. Fair, fairly acceptable. Uh, mishandling aircraft, Mishandled aircraft must always be inspected. This, this is a great one. Um, this is an example of one we can consider, a fact, as a regulatory requirement. If, wherever you are in the world, uh, you know, all, all countries are different, but, it, you know, under certain conditions, the aircraft must be inspected legally um, before it can fly again, then that's something that unless you're going to go challenge that, unless you're going to move your business into a different country, unless you're going to go challenge your legislation on that, whatever it is, uh, we can just accept that as a fact because we go, well, we want to work within the laws of this country, so that's a fact. Fine, we leave that there. However, if we go back to this this first connection, if we let the student practice solo and people are more likely to make mistakes when new to something, then sometimes the student will mishandle an aircraft, we can also list the assumptions on this, the assumptions that we're making that we aren't necessarily considering fact. We're open to changing those. So I'm going to list those now. Uh, if we let a student practice solo, then sometimes a the student will mishandle an aircraft because we're assuming uh, students make many errors. People with little practice make many errors. Students tend to mishandle aircraft more. Students are in the aircraft. Students make more errors while solo. Someone isn't there to correct student errors while solo. Students are more nervous when alone, and students have to guess while solo. So if we look at those assumptions, what we can do is we can use our hack and just reverse them. So if I reverse that list, we end up with students make fewer errors. People with little practice make fewer errors. Students don't mishandle aircraft more. Students are not in the aircraft. Students make fewer errors while solo. Somebody is there to correct students' errors while solo. Students are less nervous when alone and students don't have to guess while solo. So just by reversing those, immediately you get a few ideas. Students don't have to guess while solo. Perhaps they could be in radio communication with their instructor on the ground. That could be something that um, allows them to go up and physically be solo in the plane, but for the next couple of flights, perhaps lower their rate of mishaps. But the the big one I want to pick on here is students are not an aircraft. It's easy to see this and think, oh, that sounds ridiculous. It's also easy to look at this now, you know, knowing perhaps some, you know, some realities of how the aircraft industry works, and having put it in this clear cut uh, format, and think, oh, well, that's quite possible. So if we go back in history, this this uh, the situation that I've described would be true for air forces, for airliners, everything. Every time a student gets into a new aircraft you know, the upgrading from whatever they learned to train in into, say, a Spitfire or something, well, they'd have to learn it. And back then they had, um, you know, they had two-seater variants of even single-seat fighters, so they made a second-seat variant such that the student could be trained in it. Made sense. But kind of expensive to make this totally one-off, well, not totally one-off, but this this, uh, alternate version. Again, you don't really want students jumping into a modern airliner as they're, you know, they're an established pilot perhaps, but this might be the first time in a large jet and just letting them, you know, do a few laps around the sky and it, horrendously expensive and also highly risky. So what do, what do we have? Simulators. Simulators which are these days very effective. And those are something that have come in over time. But it's an interesting example. It doesn't tend to exist in, uh, in the, the basic sort of uh, early training or at least not in, in sort of general aviation and that's probably, again, due to the expense, but you look at uh, the way VR is going and everything, um, you look at the way uh, computers are going, it's, it's fairly likely that will start to come in more and more into general aviation as it becomes cheaper and cheaper. Even the standard Microsoft Flight Simulator now is, is um, fantastic. Anyway. It's an interesting example because we've gone from having to have these um, a slightly different version of this, having to have say these aircraft that have two seats, uh, to having simulators. The if you compare the Spitfire to the sort of latest and greatest, which is the F thirty uh, five fighter jet, that doesn't have any twin seat variants. Um, the way they built that, there was just no space for it. They you know you can't take things out and, and fit the seat in, and they didn't want to. They wanted to make it you know like the ideal aircraft without this sort of having to make a a floor in it so that you could train people in it. Instead, they just have state-of-the-art simulators. So the idea is a student gets to go, you know, tear around the sky in one of them the first time they jump in one. But the simulators have made that uh, possible. Saying all of this, you're probably thinking, well, yeah, sure, that seems quite reasonable. But at some point it wasn't reasonable. And the issue with looking at any circumstance where I'm not creating an, you know, I'm not actually creating the innovation right before you on the spot and changing the world is uh, there's a quote from Musk about everything seems impossible until it isn't. And then it seems obvious and that's exactly the circumstance. It all seems you know impossible until we break it down into its components and we question those components. We challenge our assumptions and we look at what we can actually change. And then of course, after the fact you go, Oh, well, that's obvious. But that's the the method we're looking at. So that's how to practically apply first principles thinking, how to reason from first principles. You get the the situation very clear and simple cause and effect statements to get all the fluff out of it. You then break down uh, the problem into its fundamental principles by looking at those assumptions and challenging them. And then once you have the assumptions that, look flawed or faulty, or you just think you can have a go at, then you create those new solutions from scratch. Okay, how do we, how do we cause this assumption to no longer be true and for something else to be true in its place? So hopefully that's a, that's a uh, practical run through for you to be able to apply uh, to your business and to your, to your life uh, to innovate. And um, this is, it's what's required to, to innovate. Whether you realize you're doing this or not, this is the functions of it. This is what all the, the big entrepreneurs, what all the big breakthroughs have been through is challenging the assumptions that everybody before them has made and changing them. And that's reasoning from first principles. So thanks for listening. And uh, please uh, message me with any feedback you've got or anything, anything you'd like a podcast on. Otherwise, I'll see you on the next one. Thanks.